So, Dale, I don't know how much you know about therapy, but it usually starts by you telling me a little something about yourself. I thought there'd be couches and Kleenex and shit. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. Do you want to talk about some of those feelings? I love you. Obviously, you don't know me. So how's this supposed to work? You sit, I sit, we talk. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam. And I'm Dr. Fran. Welcome to Freudian Scripts. The podcast where we put your favorite TV shows and movies on the hypothetical couch and take a deeper dive into the way psychology is portrayed. We analyze the way therapy looks in entertainment, discuss the way psychological diagnoses are portrayed, and break down other psychological themes seen on our screens. As a reminder, Freudian Scripts is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your mental health professional with any questions and seek care if needed. The content and clips in today's episode will contain explicit language and mature and adult themes. We're back with our first full session following our winter break this week, and we have a really fun psychology rom-com-themed session for you today in the spirit of Valentine's Day. Pilot, I love you. Will you marry me? (laughs) I got a letter from the University of Michigan. I got a job for two years. Two years is nothing. Really? And we'll start planning the wedding again from there. We both know I deserve to get super laid for this. It's gonna be fun. (laughs) How's Michigan? Oh, Oh, it's a fire hydrant. All in all, it's an adjustment. You told me that it was gonna be two years. It's sort of like when you're on a treadmill and you tell yourself, I'm gonna run five miles today, and now it's forever miles. When was the last time you were on a treadmill? I don't think we can figure out all of our problems before we get married, but I promise you that I will just love you every step of the way. The five-year engagement. What a cute little flower girl you'll be. I'm Pocahontas. That's right. Today we are putting the five-year engagement on our couch, which is a romantic comedy from 2012. It stars Jason Siegel as Tom, who is a sous chef, and PhD graduate Violet, played by Emily Blunt. When the movie begins, they are happily engaged and living in San Francisco. However, their wedding plans are interrupted and continuously change due to family circumstances. And when Violet is accepted into a two-year postdoctoral psychology program at the University of Michigan. They move to Michigan, delaying their wedding further, and Tom misses out on an opportunity to become head chef back in San Francisco. Their relationship becomes increasingly strained as their engagement is continuously extended. (laughs) Maybe for five years, based on the title. (laughs) That's a good hypothesis, Dr. Fran. (laughs) (laughs) We're super excited to be covering this movie today as it brings up a new area of psychology that I don't think we've gotten a chance to cover at all yet. Um, And that is social psychology. So we've talked mostly about clinical psychology on the podcast so far of really like when we're interacting with clients or mental health diagnoses or in that area of things. But what Violet is studying and what she's gotten her PhD in and what she goes on to do this postdoctoral fellowship in is not the same type of psychology degree that Dr. Sam and I have. It's actually a different type of psychology called social psychology. So we figured we share a bit about what that actually means. Very true. I'm really excited to discuss social psychology because it's a new specialty that we can discuss today. And I don't know if you even know this, Dr. Fran, but in undergrad, Um, which for those of you that don't know, Dr. Fran and I actually attended the same undergrad institution. Um, But I studied a lot of social psychology and was a part of a social psychology lab as a research Mm. assistant and did a lot of research. So social psychology is near and dear to my heart. I briefly considered even pursuing a PhD in social psych before I, you know, found my true passion in clinical psychology. I did not know that. That is a fun fact about you, Dr. Sam. (laughs) (laughs) So when we say social psychology, we're really talking about the study of how people affect and are affected by other people and their social and physical environments. So social psychology is really seeking to understand human experiences and behaviors in our social settings. Yeah, and I think when we try to describe like what this actually means in real life, it can be a host of different things. Like social yes. psychologists across the country and across the world have a variety of ways that they that they approach human behavior and those social interactions. Um, so this could be studying like prejudice or romantic attraction, persuasion friendship and aggressive behavior. Um, So some examples of social psychology research could be work on like different attitudes or things related to the self. 
self-regulation, motivation in social situations, emotions, stereotypes, interpersonal relationships, personalities. So there's just like a laundry list of things that could fit um, within this broad scope of social psychology. Yes, a very wide range. A lot of the research I did like earlier on in my um, training or education was related to self-control and self-regulation, decision-making, things like that. So um, it is very wide ranging. A lot of really interesting work. Um, A lot, I think, of like studies that we've heard about, you know, like that kind of make it more into popular culture that are kind of older studies. I think a lot do come from social psychology. We'll talk about a couple today. Um, So really interesting stuff. Yeah, I think that's a really good point of when we think about the typical psych- social psychologist or social like psychology lab or like academic um, department, they're oftentimes going to be involved in experiments or, you know, um, research projects focused on specific areas of interest where we're maybe comparing behavior or comparing responses to something across different controlled conditions. So when we think about like experiments and research, when you like think of those that come to mind, they likely fall more in that social psychology umbrella, as opposed to the research that Dr. Sam and I do, which is much more about like working with patients and maybe developing like interventions and like treatments. Mm -hmm. And it's more kind of like in the field, this is more like that experimental research often um, that's kind of done in a more of a lab setting. So some common examples of things you might have heard of, or, you know, I think kind of cross into popular media, like the Stanford prison experiment, which now there's like a movie about, and I think even a TV show about, um, there's like the Milgram's experiment, which I think a lot of people have heard about in which people were asked under the guidance of an expert or professional to shock like um, what we call confederates or people who are part of the study, but they didn't know that those people were part of the study and gave them increasingly strong shocks just because they were instructed to do so. So looking at kind of that influence. Um, so a lot of those types of studies are social psychology experiments. Yeah, I think those a lot of again, a lot of the like common ones we might hear of or see be portrayed in um, media are likely to fall in that social social psychology realm. Um, what is probably not accurate, which we get the impression of like <laughs> right off the bat from social psychology is the first interaction <laughs> with the professor teaching. Um, and I think there's always this somewhat of a trope in movies about like the amazing professor who's like very charismatic and has this like super engaging lecture and like everyone's fascinated. And like, while there are some amazing professors in the academic world, most of them are not like basically putting on a magic show literally on the <laughs> first day of class why would you sit through a fire alarm just because i a man you've only just met tells you it's a false alarm doesn't mean that in seconds time we could all be engulfed in flames begging and crying for a quick death but it is a false alarm and those firemen they're actors want to see some real fire (laughs) welcome to social psychology thank you No, I will say I did get into psychology because my very first psychology course, I really did enjoy the professor, found it to be really interesting, really engaging, but there was no fire, there was no fanfare. (laughs) Um, You know, Winton, also the psychologist that Dr. Fran is alluding to in the movie, he plays into a lot of the stereotypes, like glasses and like kind of like tweed jacket kind of look, like with his style, you know, just like every kind of stereotype of like psychology professor, like that is him in the movie. Yeah, 100%. And another experiment that you all may have heard of that falls in this uh, realm of social psychology that's portrayed in the movie is the marshmallow test. I feel like this is a super widely heard of, at least, um, popularized experiment within the psychology realm. Um, And it's alluded to briefly in the film as something that that Winton has done before, that like, oh, I want to take my marshmallow test and like adapt it and do some, like, what's the next level? So they're kind of almost making it seem like this professor is the one who did this, but in reality, it was not Winton. Um, But the marshmallow (laughs) test does have like a long, um, like real history within the social psychology world. Yeah, so we, I definitely want to come back to that scene because I think Dr. Fran and I can kind of break down just how realistic or not it is when they're just developing their research projects in that way. Like, yeah, right, I wish. But anyway, um, the real marshmallow test was first conducted in 1972 at Stanford University. And what the marshmallow test is really looking at is measuring delayed gratification in children. So they put children 
you know, in what they would call different conditions. So they're kind of going through different experiences as part of the study um, to see if they would wait um, or not to eat the marshmallows when instructed. And they kind of either had them like waiting alone, just in the room with marshmallows, waiting in the room with toys and the marshmallows um, to see like if the children were able to delay gratification and not eat the marshmallows. Yeah. And then this study became hugely popular and then later somewhat controversial because in a follow-up study of these children that had gone through the the, mar- the original marshmallow test, um, they actually end up correlating SAT scores of, of children who had participated, indicating that children who had waited longer um, were more likely to have higher SAT scores. So then there were a lot of like conjectures that were made about this research, like, oh, kids who wait longer, it means they're smarter or they're going to be more successful and um, kind of like had this tailspin. You can imagine like the ways that uh, media or like news might have just like pulled some things out of this and made it a really big deal. Um, they also later did a like follow-up study of that in 2000 that also found that this like delayed gratification ability might have predicted like people having higher self-worth, higher self-esteem. So it just really started to contribute to this narrative of like kids who can wait for the marshmallow are just going to be <laughs> way better off in life. Yes, and it's always I feel like there's always caution to be had when these types of experiments are popularized because there's always like a degree of um you know, the level of the person reading the study and what they understand and take away from the study and then how they present the findings. So like, you know, Dr. Fran really importantly said that there were correlations between SAT scores and those who waited to eat the marshmallow. Um, And for those of you that maybe are familiar with stats or have taken a stats course, you might have heard the old saying, you know, correlation does not equal causation. So just because two things are correlated doesn't mean that they're causing one or the other, right? Um, It's like, I think one of the examples they always give is that, you know, violent crime and murder goes up in the summer and that is correlated with ice cream consumption. But eating ice cream does not lead to murder, right? (laughs) There are other factors at play here. And so when we're looking at correlations, we have to be cautious about how we're interpreting interpreting those results. Yeah, I think that's such a good point, Dr. Sam. And you're talking about an important piece there. Like, again, in our statistical language, we might refer to that as like a confounding variable yes. or man- <laughs> many confounding variables that might be the thing that's actually like explaining the relationship or, you know, helping to contribute to that outcome that isn't that this like A leads to B automatically. Um, so luckily, they were able in 2018, um, some researchers went back and tried to replicate this study. They're like, okay, this has yeah. been super widely popularized and talked about. Like, let's see if we can replicate this um, in a more diverse sample. It's also important to know the original study was done at Stanford with students of Stanford employees. So it was Mm. mostly faculty members and staff members at Stanford University, which is in a pretty affluent area, and it was mostly their children. Um, So you can also imagine like how generalizable is that sample to maybe children across the U.S. or in other states or in other countries. Um, And so they were able to replicate that study and actually didn't replicate the same findings. So they did this experiment the exact same way, but the findings didn't hold true. And actually, what they were able to find is that socioeconomic status was really the reason that students later went on to have higher SAT scores or, you know, have kind of better opinions of themselves and like all these other different factors, and that that was really playing much more of a role than whether they waited an extra 10 minutes for a marshmallow or not. And that makes sense when we say, you know, socioeconomic status variables and things of that nature. What we're talking about are things like income, parent education, race, ethnicity. There are a lot of different factors that go into that, um, that, you know, you know, one could probably see how those types of things would be better connected to some of these other factors as opposed to whether or not the kid just waited for the marshmallow. Um, But when we take this back to the five-year engagement world, you know, they are maybe unaware of all of this research and replication that has been done. I don't know. But they're going to take it upon themselves to, you know, take this study and kind of tweak it or look at things in a different way, which honestly, you know, uh, Dr. Fred and I both do conduct research. And that is pretty accurate at times. You know, there has a lot of researchers will look at different studies or different things, um, you know, different findings, different populations, and they might be interested in certain pieces of that and maybe want to see like what it looks like if you change a certain thing or look at it in a different sample a different population, a different group of people. So that's not unheard of. Um, That does happen. But let's listen to how they discuss how they're going to do it in this research lab. As you know, if we don't get research grants, we've no money to pay you. And as of now, we don't have one. So we need ideas we can, you know, for some studies that we can run. And this this is my main area of interest here. Good. 
So I want to do the marshmallow experiment with adults. Well, adults will just wait for the second marshmallow. I actually don't even think adults really like marshmallows. Yeah, well, I'm not referring specifically to the, to the marshmallow. What about this? What if we were to take our subjects, right, and, and have them play a driving video game? Uh, have half of the subjects drive the car normally, have the other half drive while masturbating. Why do all of your experiments have to involve masturbation? Why do none of your experiments involve masturbation? Um, what if we, um, casually left a box of stale donuts in the testing room, um, and you inform the subjects that these stale donuts will be replaced with new donuts 20 minutes from, from then, and then, but then we watch and we see who still goes for an old donut, um, what would be interesting is if we had a manipulation. So one group, we could make them feel temporarily depressed. Or... You know what we should do? We should do a screening of The Notebook. Yes! Uh, I know it's stupid, but that shit makes me cry. Yeah. I would eat 10 million donuts after watching The Notebook. Okay, I got a good one. How about we get a subject and then put the subject to sleep and then cover him with the blood and chicken feather and then put a gun in his hand and then scream inside of his ear. For, for what for what purpose? I just want to see what ha would happen. Okay, listen, I like Violet's donut experiment. I think it's elegant, it's simple, and, and we all get to eat donuts. Great. <laughs> well done, Violet. Thank you. Welcome on board. So in this scene, you know, I think that movies do this a lot. Like, I know we see this a lot, like, with advertising or other, I just think, like, kind of professions where there's, like, brainstorming in place. But they're basically just all sitting around a table and just pitching ideas. Um, and these ideas, you know, like, typically in research, you would have um, a good understanding of all the research that has been done in your area. So for them, if they're interested in, like, delayed gratification, they would know, like, some of the things that are related to that or not related to that. But it seems like they're just kind of throwing things out there, like driving a car while while masturbating or not masturbating, like covering people in feathers, like just not really related at all to the original study or any of the findings that they're interested in. <laughs> yeah. And usually there'd be like Winton is, I assume, the like head of this research lab. And then he's yes. got at least one postdoc. I'm always unclear on whether the other people are graduate students or postdocs. I guess they're postdocs as well. They were all postdocs in the movie. Okay. So, but he's sitting mm -hmm. around with his team, but he's the lead researcher. So, like, usually yes. there's some line of, like, theme of research that the, like, primary yeah. <laughs> person does, and they're picking things that are, like, in line with that research. And postdocs might do spinoffs of that, but they're not going to be, like, total 180, like, out of left field, like, have no connection to the mentor or the main person's, like, original research, typically. Very true. And I think the professor even says something like, oh, I just want to do it and, like, take it and do it with, like, apples or something. Um, and we learn at the end of the Clip that they've all been doing this just to kind of, I guess, scare Violet. Like, you know, it all has been in jest. Okay, I have an experiment. I think we get three psych grad students together and we have them come up with the craziest, most insane experiment ideas. And then we just wait and see how long it takes for the new girl to realize that they're totally screwing with her. <laughs> <laughs> You're so busted. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I felt like I was listening, like, to all of you, like, because that masturbation thing was, like... That's not a joke. That's that's real. My masturbation theories are, are real. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's obsessed with them. It's kind of a drag. But it doesn't really seem to change much later when they're coming up with their ideas because they still do the same thing. They just sit around the table, kind of pitch ideas. Violet's like, why don't we just do it with adults and stale donuts? And they're like, yeah, sure. That's the study. And they go and run with it. I don't know about you, Dr. Fran, but is that how your research ideas or any research ideas of the people you collaborate with come to fruition? Like, oh, yeah, let's just go ahead and do that study just like that. I mean, I wish. I wish it was that easy yeah. of, like, I throw out a research idea and it just happens. Um, yeah. There's also some illusions of, like, wanting to get grant funding, and we can talk a bit more about, yes. like, what that means. But it, it would be unusual that you would be able to – you would have the resources to all of a sudden be like, oh, you just threw out a good idea. Like, let's go ahead and do it. Um, yeah. Like, you would need – funding you would need like to get approval to do this study like you there's a lot of steps that would have to go through before you just like did the study between like having the idea formulation and when you actually run the study um which of course it's a movie so we understand that they like have to accelerate it because they don't want to watch them like do all the paperwork and apply for grants <laughs> and that's pretty boring <laughs> Very true. But 
just to be said that there are a lot of things in between that. And, you know, even, okay, you're going to do this study, but what are the outcomes? Like, what are the things you're wondering? Like, whether or not they eat the stale donut, what is that going to impact? Okay, delayed gratification, certain personality factors, predictions of success, whatever it is, how are you measuring that? And then how are we going to, like, put that all together? And how are we going to pay the people that are in the focus groups? And how are we going to buy the donuts? And how, you know, there are a lot of pieces. Um, Even on the day of the study launch, they're just like, oh, okay, like, who's going to do what? And how are we going to do this? Like, no, this would all have been super planned out. There'd be scripts, there would be a whole process in place. It's not as like free floating uh, as they would make it seem. (laughs) Right. So who's going to be our actor? No, 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 please, no, I really don't want to do it. Oh, come on, it's simple, no. you just explain the personality test, then casually mention that the day-old donuts would be replaced no, by I fresh know ones. I'm and say, anyone just... who takes an old donut's got impulse control No, 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 I know, really? I just, I'm going to freeze up. You're going to be great, seriously. People love you, you got to do it, it's going to be so much fun. Violet, Violet, okay. Violet, go on. Violet, Violet, Violet. Hello, everybody. So, before... You fill out your personality tests. I just wanted to apologize for the snacks. Those donuts are from yesterday. And there will be fresh ones to replace those ones in a half of an hour. She's horrible. So, wait or dine. The choice is yours. Bye. Really bad. Yeah, that was another thing that stuck out to me. It, like, it was all just very haphazard. Um, like when they yeah. just were like sitting right before the study being like, who's going to go give them the instructions? I was appalled. <laughs> I was like, this is this would not happen in real life because what if one person going in and giving these instructions gives them differently than the next person? And then that introduces another variable. Like maybe people are more likely to wait because this person seems scarier if they like don't wait or, you know, there's all these different variables that could be influenced by changing even this tiny piece of who is giving the instructions and what they're saying. Yes. And the instructions would definitely be written out. It would be a scripted set of instructions. It would be, you know, the same way for every you know, group of people that came through. Um, One of the big things, too, we see in this study is that they are using um, manipulation, right? Or also, like, they're using deception to manipulate the people that are in their study. So when we say deception in research, um, this is when the people that are participating, you can call them, like, subjects or participants, they are intentionally misled or information is withheld from them about the true nature of the experiment. And investigators or researchers can use this, like can use deception or mislead or omit information about the study um, or about the the overall purpose of the research or what procedures are actually happening if there are uh, certain conditions that are met in order to allow that to happen. Um, So one of the things is that Without this deception, like if the participants knew what was really being measured, they wouldn't really be able to get at that. And so you could see that in this study that that's accurate, right? Because if you were to say, we're testing to see whether or not you eat these stale donuts or wait. And if you, you know, if you don't wait, then that means something about you. And if you wait, that means something. Because then everyone's going to be thinking like, oh, okay, I'm definitely not going to eat these stale donuts, right? Like. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a really good point of this deception piece, because I do think to some extent this is accurate. Like sometimes one-way mirrors are used to be able to observe participants. And sometimes the true purpose of the study is not disclosed to people immediately. Um, Like I can remember uh, a lot of times uh, college students might participate in research on their college campuses to like earn course credit or to like get extra money. Um, So I remember being a subject uh, in a research (laughs) project and I had to play like a, a game a computer game against someone and then they later told me like actually you were playing against like a computerized program like it wasn't a real person on the other end so that technically is deception in terms of i was told one thing about what was what i was doing to participate and then at the end that's a really important piece of deception and it being allowed is that the participants have to be told eventually as soon as is able the real true nature of what the experiment was and anything that they weren't aware of during the time. So technically, after this donut experience experiment ends, <laughs> Violet or Winton needs to go and debrief with these participants and say, hey, the real reason we had you in this room doing yep. this focus group was because we were waiting to see if you ate the stale donuts or not. 
Exactly. And your experience reminds me, Dr. Fran, in undergrad, I actually worked as a research assistant for a study where I was a confederate. So I was actually like a researcher that was pretending to be another participant. And we were, um, or the, the main researcher that I was working for at the time was looking to see if like mirroring and other kind of ways that people interacted with you, like socially, like impacted the way you responded to certain questions. Um, and that one was really cool because I would go in, I would wait in the same waiting room like the other student would show up we'd be like oh hey you're here for the experiment yeah and then we'd go in and we had like both like these little cards we would ask each other questions and then answer the questions and I was supposed to like physically mirror their body language and answer the questions in a certain way um to see if that like altered the response um uh you know having the confederate versus other participants who actually had other real students that did the like experiment with them and so that was one where we used deception and afterwards we debriefed and i like oh hey i'm actually part of the research team and we like shared with them like what we were studying and looking at <laughs> yeah and I, I think that's an important piece to mention just like again being like that informed consent piece and you know being like an avid consumer and participant in research uh, potentially for our listeners of like this stuff does happen and there are like a lot of regulations and rules that researchers have to go through to make sure that if you're using deception in your research it has to be done in a way that's very sensitive to like participant distress um and like that there's a lot in place to protect the participant in the event that like the deception is for some reason distressing or uncomfortable or just awkward. Um, and most of the time the research is, is most of the time the research is designed to not like create any problems for the participants. You mentioned informed consent, Dr. Fran, and I know we've talked about that in the context of like meeting with a therapist, a psychologist, you know, in a clinical sense, you know, being given all the information that you need to be able to make a decision about whether or not you want to proceed with therapy, right? And what kind of the, um, what is in, what, therapy entails. So in research, someone also has to give informed consent. Very similarly, they go through the the potential risks, the potential benefits, they go through confidentiality, privacy, um, some main components of the study, and give an individual all the information that they need so that they can make an informed decision about whether or not they want to participate in research. So once someone consents to research, then they would, you know, um, be put in the room and be watched to see if they eat the donut or not. And then they would be debriefed afterwards. There are also institutional review boards and other ethical boards, you know, depending on kind of where the research is taking place, like in the U.S. or other countries, um, that if you submit your research project, you kind of have all the details about how you'll provide informed consent, how you'll debrief participants, what all the steps are of the research. And they also will decide like whether or not the project is ethical and can kind of continue with the participants, you know, um, safety in mind. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Dr. Sam. Of like, there's a lot of oversight on research and that informed consent piece, and then the like, the institutional review board or IRB, if you've heard that term before. Um, really, the goal is to protect people who are participating in research. So. I guess what we're saying is in this experiment, we imagine or we can assume that this project has been approved by the proper ethical channels. They've gotten consent. They're debriefing appropriately. There is one example, though, of a study that they do in this movie that is just like not ethical. I do not think it would have passed any IRB board. No. And there's no real reason for the deception that is used. But that is when uh, Violet's fellow fellow, <laughs> um, uh, we see later that Ming has done his own experiment. I think we can kind of listen to that uh, briefly, but you're not going to get much of a sense of it. You really have to see it. The subject is asleep. <laughs> Time for the experiment. Let's see what happens. Four blood all over his body. <laughs> Cover his body in feathers. <laughs> it's time to put a gun in his hand. Oh my god. Now the final step, I'm going to yell, wake up, inside of his ear, and see what happens. <laughs> wake up! Oh. Ah! 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 So what we're hearing here is the aftermath of um, essentially the experiment that we heard Ming describe earlier, yeah. seemingly as a joke, but apparently he was serious. And I think Dr. Sam is 100% right. Like, an experiment like this would never get approved by the IRB or no. the Ethical Review Board. Like, this is all sorts of unethical and like highly distressing for this person and dangerous and dangerous risky like 
no way an experiment like this would be approved in any way, shape or form that I can that I can expect. No, like having that individual wake up like with that, like whatever all over him with the feathers and then a gun in his hand. I think it's like blood and feathers and yeah. a gun in his hand. Um, it, it seems more than an experiment, really like a horrible idea for a prank. It's like being just pranked this person. Yeah. It's not a real like experiment at all. Yes, very unethical and probably illegal in some ways. That's very true. Yeah, highly unethical. Um, and then Violet kind of conducts her own little like side project with her donuts as well that we could kind of discuss the ethics of. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if she does it intentionally, but we later learn it seems like yeah. she may have done it intentionally that while her and Tom are going through <laughs> some strained aspects of their relationship, which we'll get into in a little bit, um, she leaves stale donuts out and she sees Tom <laughs> eating them and dressed as a bunny, <laughs> dressed as a bunny. He's definitely in a dark place. He's not doing great yeah. mentally and emotionally. And he eats the stale donuts and Violet can, you can tell she like doesn't feel good about that. She's not happy that he ate the stale donuts <laughs> no. and it came out, comes out later, way later after they've broken up, after they are like, haven't been together. They're both seeing other people. Um, but that seemed to be a big turning point for her, actually, of like distancing herself in that relationship was that her and Winton had come up with these results from their donut experiment that people who ate the stale donuts were more likely to have like emotional difficulties or, you know, a lot of stress and not really do well. Um, they unfortunately use a very like stigmatizing term of like calling them screw ups. Um, mm -hmm. And so because she's done this experiment, she now is making the assumption like, oh, Tom ate these stale donuts, therefore he must be a screw-up. I don't want to be with this person anymore, which is just, like, so unethical for a ton of reasons and just isn't yes. a good scientist of, like, taking no. this, like, very controlled experiment you've done in a lab and then putting it out in the real world and making assumptions that what you saw in the lab is automatically going to translate into this completely different context. Okay. Mm, donuts. Are you going to eat these? No, but those are old. And if you want to just wait for a minute, I'll be back with some fresh ones. These are fine. I don't have to wait at all. Mm. Are you going to get dressed today? I think today is more of a bunny day. Yes, and I think Tom puts it pretty well. Like, when Violet finally shares, like, oh, a, a turning point for me was when you ate the stale donut, and she reveals this all to Tom. Tom yells at her, or he doesn't yell at her, but he becomes, um, you know, pretty uh, passionate in his response. And he says, like, you never know if the fresh donuts are actually ever going to come. And, like, the stale donuts taste just fine. <laughs> you know, and just because I wanted to eat a donut in that moment doesn't mean I have impulse or emotional control, like, difficulties, right? You know, I never said anything, but your entire premise is bullshit. Okay, and would you, would you like to know why? Because these imaginary new donuts that you offer people, they may never arrive. Okay? They're not real. And me... Personally, I am not the type of person who wants to sit around and wait for something that might never arrive when they know that the thing they have in front of them is, fuck, it's tasty. It's, it's good. So definitely not the most ethical uh, to kind of test your partner in that way and then to kind of extrapolate those results. Um, and I don't know at what stage her results even were. We find out later, like, oh, they have NIH funding to continue this experiment. It's like, oh, okay, overnight? That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> that was another thing that stuck out to me. And I think we can kind of transition a bit here and just talking about, like, the academic career path trajectory because it's a major theme kind of of this movie because yes. it's a big reason that Violet and Tom end up having to move to Michigan and Tom is taken away from his dream job and really tries to mm -hmm. sacrifice for her so she can pursue this academic career. And I would actually say a, quite a bit about that piece of it can is pretty accurate as portrayed in the yes. movie in terms of just like having to move somewhere kind of random to find this job and um, this kind of back and forth of like, okay, I've signed on for this two-year postdoc and like, ooh, we now got funding and now I get to stay longer, yeah. but that that's not guaranteed. So there's just like a lot of that like uncertainty piece that I do think is pretty accurate in like the academic context. Yes, I think Dr. Fran and I can both relate to that, you know, just like in our own personal lives, like having 
to finish graduate school and then go for advanced training and then going for a postdoctoral fellowship. And exactly, then she gets like, you know, additional funding. And it's really difficult sometimes, and depending on your specialty, to get an academic um, professorship or a position in an academic institution as a social psychologist or as any type of psychologist. So kind of going where the jobs are, where the funding is. Um, Definitely a major theme that we see with Violet and I think portrayed pretty accurately when we're looking at most social psychologists, just like Violet, they do go into teaching or conducting research at a college or university level. So just like we see Violet at the University of Michigan. Um, and to have that type of career, a doctoral degree, so like a PhD, is usually required to become a college um, or university professor, which at the end of the movie, or towards the end of the movie, rather, we see that she has been given an assistant professor job um, to do teaching and continuing the research at the University of Michigan. Um, and we know, as uh, as you've heard in previous sessions of ours, and even similar to our training, that PhD programs and in specifically in social psychology can take or typically take about five years to complete. So we can assume that Violet, we know she has her PhD. She finished her PhD program, I think, in Berkeley or back in California, and then is now here for the two-year postdoc, which then, you know, as we discussed, extends. <laughs> Yeah, and I think there's like um, some confusion sometimes about like what a postdoc is and if it's required. And mm -hmm. it, it does kind of depend on the field that you're in. Um, but in the social psychology world, well, although not required to get an academic position, oftentimes individuals will go on to do training after their doctoral degree or postdoctoral training um, to get a lot more experience in research and to maybe write their own grants, maybe do some of their own projects to essentially make them more competitive for the uh, the professor job market. Um, Dr. Sam and I both did postdoctoral fellowships as mm -hmm. well. On the clinical side of things, um, it is oftentimes required to be able to do that um, so that you can get licensed as a psychologist. Um, so that's a little bit different because it's our our postdoctoral fellowships were more clinical in nature, whereas the one we see with Violet is a lot more research focused. Yes. And we also hear um, with Violet's ultimate goal of wanting to stay in academia and stay like at the university she's at, there are a lot of expectations related to keeping a job or even getting a job of that nature that do involve like research productivity. Um, so the amount that you are publishing, writing, being known in your field and grant funding. So um, for Violet, as a researcher, a big part of her role or others that have jobs like her will revolve around her ability to apply for grants. And those can be from, like, you've probably heard, like, the National Institutes of Health or other federal funding agencies. Um, there are foundations or other places that you can get funding. But really applying for and then being awarded that money, and that is a big part of what you are assessed, like, in terms of keeping your job and moving up in your career in academia. Yeah. And another term our listeners have likely heard of is tenure before. So oftentimes, mm -hmm. like I feel like in movies, but even in real life, like the ultimate goal in academia <laughs> seems to be to get like a tenure track position or become tenured. Um, and essentially the, the way tenured is often described, tenure is often described is uh, kind of like an indefinite appointment that can only really be <laughs> terminated if there's like a really extraordinary circumstance. So the idea is kind of job security. So if someone is able to get tenure, the idea is that they wouldn't necessarily be fired if they decided to just like pivot and do a completely different type of research or if they weren't as productive one year. Um, and that might be very different than someone who's early in their career um, who doesn't have that job security or that guarantee that they're going to be able to keep their position. And so they're having to get grants to prove like, I deserve to be here. Look how much money I'm bringing in. Look at the cool research that I'm doing versus someone on tenure has more of that flexibility to kind of do the research that they want to do without worrying about um, having to lose their job potentially. And I don't believe in the movie, like, if we hear of Violet's position is, like, a tenure position or not. But oftentimes when you do get a academic job like Violet's, well, it will be either on the tenure track or the not tenure track and kind of depending, kind of working towards that. Um, we do hear Violet explain, like, that she has NIH funding to extend her postdoc. So we know that she kind of stays on. And then the presumption is that she has continued to get funding that will help with her career as well. Well, Violet, congratulations. And your timing couldn't have been more perfect. We've just got the NIH funding, of course, partially due to your excellent work. And this means I can extend your postdoc. However, not everyone in her lab seems to think that Violet like properly earned the position that she gets. Let's listen 
to um, Kevin Hart and then Winton himself discuss like her getting the coveted position. Hey, heard your news. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Where are you going? Uh, on my way to University of North Dakota. Oh, that's good. Yeah. No, no, it's great. I'm excited. I'm gonna be a pioneer. I'm be the first black guy to freeze to death. It's gonna be cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped up about it. Cool. Yeah. It's just like that song. You know, I get knocked down, except I get up again in North Dakota, which is the worst place on earth. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know what? I'm overreacting. It's gonna be great. And I couldn't keep up with you and Winton. I couldn't compete, so. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Look, I mean, come on, you know what I mean. I don't. You know what I mean. Yeah, well, it's not really like that. Ah, no. It's a fact. Yeah, well, that's not why I got the... Ha! Ah, a little bit. Can I ask you something? Yeah? Did I get the job because I deserved it, or did I get it because you're trying to keep me here? You got it because you deserved it. Okay. So I was the strongest candidate? Of course you were. Okay, well, we should not be watching this. You're right, we shouldn't. I mean, these, these things are inherently subjective. But I certainly feel that we made the right choice, yes. I think I just need you to say yes or no as to whether I was the strongest candidate. Well, why, why, why does it matter so much? Because it matters to me. You know, I want to deserve to be here. Was I the best? Who's to, who's to say who's the best or the worst? I'm better than she is. No, you're not. It goes Violet, me, you, then Doug. What do these labels even mean? Look, just answer me. Did I deserve the job or did I get it because you're trying to keep me here? It's very simple, Winton. Violet, why don't you trust me? If, 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 if you make me answer that question, you're violating our unspoken agreement of faith. What does that mean? What well, the question itself about? is an accusation, that, and, and I personally refuse to answer an illogical question. Well, thanks, Spock. Spock. That's a good one. I mean, it seems that your refusal to answer means that it's true. I'll tell you who's the best. Ming. Yes, I knew it. I'm the best. I'm the what best. the, the fuck? Me is the best. <laughs> so you cheated to get me the job. So what if I if I cheated to, to get the woman I love to stick around? I have a question. Would you have even considered my donut experiment if Doug had suggested it? Of course not. Wow. I, I think this is very unfortunate for so many reasons. Um, I think it's unfortunate <laughs> because I, I believe that Violet is actually probably very good at her job. She's very qualified yeah. to potentially get this position. But essentially, her relationship with Winton and him kind of going around her back to try to get her this position so that she can stay because she's his girlfriend um, ends up kind of undermining like her actual mm -hmm. qualifications for this position. And all the other postdoc fellows, like, you know, we heard Kevin Hart express, like, he's going to the University of North Dakota, and he seems really upset about that. Again, that's kind of that, like, wherever the open social psychologist positions are, you know, he's kind of being shipped off there because there aren't other opportunities. Um, and so he's expressing a lot of anger with Violet because she got this role, right? Um, I do agree with you, Dr. Fran. I think she probably is qualified and could have gotten a job like this. But now it's like very clouded because of what Winton did. And we didn't listen to the whole part of the clip, but also um, Mindy Kaling's character and Ming, um, they're behind the one-way mirror and they're hearing Winton and Violet talk about this. And they're also debating like who were the best candidates for the job. Um, and they have even differing opinions about that. So of course this is a subjective thing. Um, but Winton unfortunately does admit that he kind of like, pulled some strings or did other things to make sure she was the one that got the job just to keep her in Michigan with him. Yeah. And I think that brings up a point that we haven't made yet, shockingly, which is that Winton at one point kisses <laughs> um, Violet while she's still engaged to Tom, um, first of all. And then later after her and Tom break up, they end up dating. And this yes. is just not allowed. No, because so actually the APA, so the American Psychological Association, a lot of our ethical codes, and even, I guess it could depend on the academic institution, but there are typically ethical guidelines that relate to not having a romantic relationship with the, the direct person who is evaluating your work. Yeah. So Winton would be that person for Violet. Like he is her advisor. He is her mentor. Um, he's even like 
her professor in some classes. I don't know if that's still the case, right? But at one point he was. So if he is the person evaluating her work, I definitely think that that would cross ethical boundaries. Um, and the first night that she kisses him is actually the day that um, Tom eats the stale donuts. She's like so upset and she goes out with her lab and they drink and then that's when Winton kisses her. Yeah, not a coincidence, probably. <laughs> yeah, not um, a But yeah, I think you're right, Dr. Sam, that just like, and I think this is true not just in academia, but in a lot of different That's fields, true. right? That, like, per- the person that is your direct superior or your direct supervisor, there's so many potential issues with that being a romantic or sexual relationship that in many employment industries that is not allowed um, and yeah. for good reason. So that would be highly unethical, highly inappropriate also for him to be on the board that helps decide whether she gets a position or not. Like at yeah. least he should recuse himself from being part of that decision. Um, so there's just like a lot of things wrong with that whole aspect of this film. That's true. Even if at that point, like she was a professor or going to become like more like on equal footing, like in the institution, he would not, should not have been involved in, like, making that decision for her to have a job, um, especially, like, if their relationship is known, which it's at least known by the other lab mates. It seems like at one point they're even living together, so I would think it was kind of, like, out in, like, you know, common knowledge that they were together, but who knows. Yeah. Well, lucky for us, they do not continue to date um, <laughs> because we don't want them to continue because it's unethical and maybe um, against HR policy at some institutions. <laughs> She actually breaks up with him once she finds out that he kind of pulled strings and, you know, uh, because she even kind of sees that as him not thinking she's qualified or deserving either because he had to intervene. So she breaks up with him. I think this is like a perfect segue, you know, related to Valentine's Day having been this past, you know, this week or this past weekend um, to kind of shift and discuss some of the rom-com aspects of this movie. Yeah, I think we we obviously spent the majority of today talking about um, the psychology aspects of this, but we would be remiss if we did not comment on just the general tropes and themes related to like romantic comedies and Valentine's Day and love and relationships. (laughs) Okay, Dr. Fran is playing it real cool, but I'll let you know later like how rom-coms really affect her. (laughs) I secretly love them. Um, but I think, you know, like a big, big theme in this movie is like the challenge of balancing two people's <laughs> careers, um, or goals or interests and making sacrifices to be able to like make one person's academic or career goals happen while the other person may have to like put theirs on hold. And that is a big theme and part of what causes a lot of strain in their relationship and what kind of causes this to be a five year engagement. I think that is definitely one of the major themes. I read an NPR review from the time that the movie came out and related to what you were describing, Dr. Fran, they identify one of the major themes of the movie as the act of sacrificing for someone you love and then the long-term consequences of making those concessions. And I think they really like hit the nail on the head with that one and kind of describing some of the difficulties that we see with Tom and Violet, right? In the beginning, you know, Tom is really making this like sacrifice to give up a career as a head chef in San Francisco, you know, so like a pretty like hot and popular like food scene to go to small town Michigan um, for Violet's career to also take off because she's kind of in the beginning stages and she really does need this fellowship to help get an academic career. Um, But we also see the, the consequences of that, you know, Tom is unable to find a job in any restaurant. He ends up working for like a sandwich shop. He's really unhappy in his career. He does try to branch out and make social connections. He finds some disturbing and undisturbing hobbies with like his like hunting and making like weird clothes and things <laughs> like that. Um, uh, but he really does seem to be unhappy and even kind of like depressed at times mm-hmm. or having a more depressed mood. And so when that happens, that definitely directly impacts his relationship with Violet and vi- vice versa. And there's some other things that I think also impact the relationship, but we're really seeing kind of how these decisions and how they're helping to you know, kind of they made the decision together to help launch Violet's career, but then the the negative pieces that kind of come along with that. 
Yeah, and Violet even has that fear at the beginning. And early on when things are going well, she continually expresses that, like, I don't want you to resent me. Like, I don't want you to be unhappy. And she's, like, kind of overly worried about it. And Tom's like, no, I'm fine. I'll, I'll go with it. And then it kind of reverses and he eventually does start to feel that resentment um, that she has so feared. And when we talk about resentment, when we talk about resentment, we might like specifically define that as like the perception that someone's treated you unfairly. Um, so in this situation, like eventually Tom comes to feel like we put Violet's career first and we've moved away and sacrificed my career. Um, and at the cost of like maybe never going back to San Francisco and me never having my own career. I think that's what's tough about it too, is like at first he really has like an end point to look forward to. Like we're just going to be in Michigan for like two years, yeah. then we're back to California. But then when that keeps shifting and there's no end in sight, I think that's where we really see the start to take an emotional toll on him because he has nothing to look forward to. And he kind of sees it that way. Like, what even is the future? Their wedding keeps getting postponed, right? They don't have a wedding to look forward to. They keep kind of pushing it back. Um, one of the, like, kind of running jokes, even though it's a very sad joke, is, like, Violet's grandparents keep dying, right, the longer that they push the wedding back. So just kind of showing. And he becomes less and less invested in his hygiene, physical appearance, um, just kind of everything that he's doing, right? We really see it's taking a toll on him. And that resentment that Dr. Fran, you were mentioning, I think is a major theme because we start to see that bitterness. Like he becomes unhappy with himself, unhappy with the situation. So he starts to act or behave more bitterly towards Violet. He's expressing more anger to her. Um, he has less empathy for her, right? Like when she starts to go through a tough time because he's just like really struggling. Um, and he starts to withdraw from that relationship. Yeah. And I think, again, this could be a reflection of uh, ways that people might really feel in this situation. And I think there's also yes. something to be said about like the communication. I think at times they have a very open communication. And I think at times Tom isn't being honest with Violet about how he's feeling. And True. even at the beginning, he's kind of like, no, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And he even talks to his best friend about that Chris Pratt's character who says like, you yeah. hate it there. Like, why haven't you told her <laughs> that? Um, and so I think maybe potentially more open communication and like decision making around like their future together earlier on could have helped them like navigate this a little bit better unfortunately like as things become more difficult their communication also i think becomes worse and yeah. instead of like really talking to each other keeping those lines open at the point when Violet finds out that she's gotten the additional NIH funding and can stay longer than two years she's actually afraid to tell Tom and yeah. she kind of postpones and tries to like not tell him because she knows he's going to take it so hard. And he acts again in that moment like, oh, yeah, it's great. It's fine. And she's like, are you sure? Um, they might be extending my postdoc. So what does that mean uh, for us exactly? Um, I, th I think what it probably means is that is that we would stay here just for, for a little bit. And then would you like some of this wine? Nope. Nope. Okay. Um, I think the first phase would be uh, if a few years, and then potentially, if that went well, for longer. Sounds like we're staying. Um, and then later, he kind of expresses some anger. Um, but I think the longer things go on in this way for them, the communication definitely breaks down more and more. What? There's nothing to say! You say I'm upset, Tom! You say that... Fine! You want to talk about it? Yes! I hate it, I hate it here! Thank you! I hate it here! Thank I think you it sucks here! I think it sucks my Great. fucking dick! Good I hate you. it! I hate it here! Okay, okay, okay. But now we move forward. Now, what should we do? Would you like to open up a clam bar here? You can't get... fresh clams here. Yeah. And unfortunately, it does lead to them ending their relationship, like we've alluded to. And they take it's unclear how long of a break, maybe like several months or a year. Yeah, it's unclear. I would say like at least a year because he reaches out to her on her birthday. And then they're kind of talking about, you know, it seems like they've been in relationships, but it is unclear. Right. And they both end up having other relationships and pursuing their <laughs> career goals and end up kind of feeling like maybe they're not as fulfilled as they expected they might be when like they have the career, but they have maybe these relationships that aren't really the best fit for them. One, because Violet's is an unethical, weird power dynamic, inappropriate relationship. <laughs> And Tom is dating like a really young 
hostess, which like the main joke of that is she's a lot younger than him, has a lot more energy than him. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem like they have the same interests. Um, no. <laughs> but I, I like how you said, Dr. Fran, like they're both at a good place potentially in their careers, right? He's his own chef. He has his own concept, the taco truck. She's finally been at least offered a professorship. We don't know if she's going to take it, right? Um, so they're at a better point in that regard. Um, but they can maybe notice like something's still missing. Like they're not really as happy as they might be if they had done this together. And then kind of bringing it full circle back to the inappropriate jokes, another one of Violet's grandparents dies um, and they reconnect at the funeral. And and, uh, <laughs> and the rest is history. They um, <laughs> spend a few weeks in San Francisco together. And then as they are driving Violet to go back to Michigan, she surprises him with a proposal and wedding all in and one. And a wedding. Mm-hmm. And Choose your own adventure and- wedding. Yes, and the movie ends with them happily ever after, married, and of course everything's going to work out and there will be no more problems after they have finally gotten married. (laughs) That's where I have a question, though. It's like he's literally driving her to go back to Michigan, then they get married, but it's like, well, where are they going to live? Where are they going to work? They really haven't made any of those decisions. But Dr. Fran told me before we started recording that it didn't matter because love conquers all. (laughs) Love con- That's what this movie tells us. It does not matter how complicated things are if you love someone and you get married to them in a beautiful San Francisco outdoor wedding. Everything will be fine. I will also add that one of us, Dr. Fran or I, you all can speculate which one, may or may not have had some tears at the wedding scene. So just going to put that out there. <laughs> I will add that this is neither of our first time watching this film. <laughs> For better or worse, I will say, like, if not Love Conquers Everything, I think one of the main themes, at least of the rom-com aspect, is really the fluidity of relationships and just kind of showing how relationships and people change, shift, and progress and kind of like how you do that as a couple can vary, obviously, from couple to couple and depending on what the challenges are. But I think that's kind of the ultimate movie. And Tom and Violet, they do conquer all of those and do end up together. And I would add another element or theme of that is also just that, like, Relationships are hard and there are a lot of challenges and some couples are able to, you know, surmount those challenges and overcome them and find creative ways of dealing with them. And not all relationships work out. Um, But in this case, of course, it works out because it's a rom-com. And that brings us to some reasons why relationships might not or should not work out. Our PH don'ts. This is not a safe place. Sorry. Are you going to like keep touching me like that? That guy is a total loon. But I cannot talk about my clients. I cannot talk about my clients. That's it. Great, great job. Thank you. Don't conduct experiments on your significant other. Don't make out with your postdoc fellow. Don't then start dating that postdoc fellow. (laughs) Don't then give your postdoc girlfriend a faculty position just because you want her to stay in Michigan with you. And please don't do experiments that involve traumatizing your subjects by covering them in blood and chicken feathers and putting a loaded gun in their hand. That one should go without saying. All right, Dr. Fran, that brings us to the end of our five-year engagement session. So kind of overall, what are your feelings and thoughts about the movie? I love this movie. Um, I'm honestly like, I like rom-coms, but I feel like this one in particular, I think it's the same producer or director as Forgetting Sarah Marshall, which I also really love. Yeah. Um, And I feel like both these films, they're just like, they're funny, they're witty, they're creative. Um, And I think Dr. Sam and I can both relate on some aspects of this film, just like Mm -hmm. having been in psychology and in like the academic world and how that can be challenging in different ways. So um, I think a lot of people can relate to this if they're in that field or other fields that have like, you know, that that other fields where moving around and um, having to sacrifice for a significant other can be relevant. I agree. I also really like this movie. This is one of those movies, like, if it's on, I see it. I'll probably put it on because I already know the plot well and it's funny. I really like Emily Blunt and Jason Segel. You know, great cast. Allison Brie, Chris Pratt, Kevin Hart, Mindy Kitt. Like, you know, really great cast. Funny movie. Um, rom-com. And I think there is that element of it being relatable in terms of, like, the training and studying uh, psychology, being in academia, for sure. All right, Dr. Sam, and now it's time for our DSM-5 Diagnosing Shows and Movies. What rating would you give it, five being the highest, in terms of the portrayal of, like, social psychology and the research they're conducting? 
I actually think, okay, the research they're conducting, I don't think it's great research. (laughs) Or like, it's not not as realistic as a timeline. But I do want to give it credit for just showing like, you know, like, it's probably hard to make a movie about like, just studying to be a social psychologist and like, the kind of potentially grueling at times uh, path it can be to get a career in academia, you know, like, and I feel like they, they tackled that pretty well. And so I like that they showed that, like they kind of, they showed what social psychology is. The experiment they do would be within the realm of social psychology. It's more of like the, the nuance and logistical details. But again, grant writing and IRB meetings and that kind of stuff doesn't make for good movies. I get that. So I'm actually going to give it, I think, a three. Wow. What about you, Dr. Fran? (laughs) Um, I agree. I think it's tricky because I think for all the reasons you said, I would lean towards a three. Mm -hmm. But then there's just like, I don't know, sometimes there's those glaring ones that you just like have to knock it down a little bit for. Like like the dating. Like the dating your postdoc. Like the giving your subject a loaded gun. Um, I don't know if he did that in the con. To be fair, like they find that video online or something. So I don't know if it's in the context of the lab, but that is very unethical. Yes. So I think I mean I'll I'll keep it at a three, but like teetering on going down to a two. I agree. It's a three with like you know how some I'm like oh I'm really close to bumping it up. This is definitely like I'm really close to bumping it down. I I agree too with the relationship being unethical. I did not factor that in initially. I kind of yeah, but you're right. That is a glaring one and definitely not appropriate in the setting. If it was real life, and hopefully, <laughs> yeah, and hopefully not realistic. Yeah, hopefully not. Um, all right, well. Pretty solid threes then. I think we're also biased because we just think it's an enjoyable movie. (laughs) Yeah. And it gives us an opportunity to talk about a different aspect of psychology than we normally do. Very true. All right. Well, we will be back next session with a very fun one on Ted Lasso. Yes, we're excited to put Ted Lasso on the couch. Um, In the meantime, don't forget to check out our website for resources and lots of different terms related to social psychology and research that we talked about today. Um, And let us know if you like this movie or if you haven't watched it yet, go ahead and watch it and let us know what you think. We'd also love to hear any questions you have about psychology in general or even social psychology and any movies or TV shows that you would like to hear us put on our couch next. And please find and follow us on social media. You can find us on all the things at Freud Scripts Pod. We also post our monthly Freudian Scripture Spotlight, so check that out. Please subscribe, rate, and review. And don't forget, we're still handing out, nope, mailing out, really cool Freudian Scripture stickers if you do leave a review and let us know. So go ahead, review, get your sticker. Time's up. See you next session. We'd like to thank our producer, Brandon, creative director, Eric, and webmaster, Don. I think for the Easter egg, Brandon, you should play that song, Allison Brie and Chris Pratt, like singing that song at the end. I wish I remember <laughs> how it went. Otherwise, I would sing it. Makes us feel like singing. That's it. <laughs>